sure, we can sequence a genome, but when it comes to actually interpreting what any given mutation might mean in terms of your health, that's pretty hard. But if you have that many health records connected to that many genomes, then actually you do have the lens to start to say, well, this variant has on average this effect on this aspects of your health. And I think that's quite powerful. So we have to build it. We have to build that data set in order to understand the human genome and go beyond just sequencing the human genome. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hello, hello, and thanks for joining me today on the Genomics Podcast. I am Paul Broman, your host, and I'm the Scientific Affairs Lead at Illumina. In this episode, which is number 58, I'll share some of our podcast's highlights from the past year. You'll hear expert predictions for genomics, where we were in 2019, and where we're going in 2020 and beyond. But let's begin by discussing the impact genomics has had on cancer and oncology. Cancer is highly complex, and it's driven by a multitude of genetic factors. So understanding the mutational profile of a cancer or a tumor can help to guide therapeutic options. Recently, next-generation sequencing, or NGS, has enabled the analysis of multiple mutations across multiple genes from the same tumor sample. These genomic assays, or panels, can provide oncologists with a more comprehensive genetic profile of a given tumor. Dr. Rachel Sanborn is co-director of the Thoracic Oncology Program, at the Providence Cancer Institute in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Sanborn explained how an explosion in cancer genomics data will ultimately combine with advances in artificial intelligence technology, all to improve patient outcomes. I see the field continuing to grow and expand. This is an area where, when I think about it, the visual that comes to my mind is this is the big data. This is big data processing, and it's only going to grow. So we are going to need to drive the technology to be able to help process that information because it's not going to only be about, as I said, the targetable mutations, but it's going to be about understanding what's happening that's affecting the immune contexture in that particular patient as well. So understanding what maybe the baseline genetics are that are driving the immune system, as well as being able to interpret what's happening in terms of tumor or antigen suppression and what's happening in terms of other types of exposures that may lead to activation or tumor recognition. That's going to require automated learning, machine learning types of technologies. And we have to be able to create those readouts again before the patient dies. That's the unfortunate part that stares us in the face with all of this as we look at what the technology is, is that there's a real person on the other side of that whose life depends on having that information and having that information be accurate and be fast enough. That clock ticking is what's going to drive, I think, the development of the technology, the overlap of the of the technical side of the genetic analysis and the computer side of those analytics to create leaps that we haven't really imagined yet. Gene regulation, or epigenetics, 
is also critical in diseases like cancer. But how do our cells know which genes to turn on and which genes to turn off, and when? Well, that's the role of the epigenome, the chemicals and proteins that bind DNA and regulate gene expression. Professor Susan Clark is Research Director of Genomics at the Garvan Institute of Medical Research. Susan explained the impact that NGS has made in understanding epigenetics in cancer. And she predicts that combining genomic and epigenomic analyses will enhance precision oncology in the future. I suppose what's exciting for me is more of a personalized genomics approach for these epigenetic diseases. So at the moment, at least at the Garvin Institute, we have a process where people with rare cancers, rare disorders come in and get their genome sequenced to help for, let's say, immunological disorders or cancers. And if there's an actionable mutation with a drug that's already out there, then they can go on and have that therapy. But there is little concentration of if those genetic mutations are occurring in these epigenetic drivers. And that's where I think the next five or 10 years, we'll now be able to identify those patients where that was forgotten if they had these sort of strange mutations in genes we didn't know the function of. So I think being able to combine the epigenetic landscape with the genomic mutations will then allow more patients to have directed therapy. So this is where potentially the epigenetic therapy could be of benefit for patients that we never would have thought about to have gone on those therapies. So I think the combination to allow more precise, individualized treatment will be, from my point of view, a very exciting space to watch for in the next five years. Genotypic DNA sequence data from an individual genome or an individual tumor can help inform cancer risk and tumor biology. But phenotypic data, like drug sensitivity or drug resistance, can also help scientists to understand cancer. Dr. Ramanuj Dasgupta is senior group leader at the Genome Institute of Singapore, and he explained the value of screening for genotype and phenotype in patient-derived tumor models. Ram believes that combining NGS-derived genotypic data with phenotypic data will lead to a paradigm shift in precision oncology. What excites me the most, perhaps, in the future is that we can affect a paradigm shift in the clinical management of cancer, going from a predominantly reactive modality to becoming proactive in terms of giving the right patient the right drug at the right time. So again, reiterating this tenet of precision oncology. And in the future, what it means or what it could look like is the patient comes in. What my dream is that we can just do a single cell tumor biopsy. What we've talked about is still much to do with models. Single cell tumor biopsy. Yeah, so we want a biopsy and we do a single cell analysis basically and identify all the cell states. Again, by cell states, I mean phenotypic states, which is dictated by the epigenome and the transcriptome, right? You already have the mutations, can't really avoid that. However, using a single cell tumor biopsy to be able to predict whether a patient's going to respond or not. And if they don't respond, 
going a step further, being able to prescribe what may work with a certain degree of probability, of course, right? And that's what excites me. It, it sounds a bit Star Trekish, but I think we'll get there. Single-cell genomics techniques allow scientists to analyze the genetic material of millions of individual cells isolated from bulk tissues. And this NGS-enabled technology has really revolutionized our understanding of the type and nature of cells in our bodies. Dr. Shalin Naik is laboratory head in the Division of Immunology at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. And he discussed his use of single-cell omics to understand the immune system. Shalin predicts that single-cell omics and cell history studies will refine our understanding of the immune system in the future. You know, when you do single-cell RNA-seq on a cell, you get the gene expression profile. But what made it so? What was the experience of its ancestors that led it to be that kind of cell? So let's say it's a type of T-cell that is an autoimmune T-cell. It kills your own tissue. Well, what about its experience led to that problem? So imagine if you could record in the DNA or other means, but I think the DNA is probably the easiest way, not all of the things, but some of the things that happened to that cell along the way that might inform how it got there. So we're thinking about, and lots of other people are thinking about, well, how do we start recording little bits of information of its experience, not just in terms of lineage history, like what cells it's related to, like it's cellular barcoding, but did it experience a certain cytokine one month ago? And then a different cytokine two weeks ago? And then did it get co-stimulation from this other cell yesterday? Could we record that in a cell and then play back that history? Oh, that'd be super cool. <laughs> so we're thinking about that and other people think about that. I think that's where we're going to get some next level of profound insight is cell history recording and playing back that tape. The immune system is skilled at determining friend from foe. But our immune systems can sometimes turn against us, leading to autoimmune disease. Dr. Carola Vinuesa is Professor of Immunology at the Australian National University and the Director of the Centre for Personalised Immunology. She joined me to discuss how NGS can unravel the complex interaction of cells and molecules that regulate antibody responses, and how NGS can help identify genetic abnormalities that contribute to the development of autoimmunity. Her hope is that combining genomics with other biological data sets will ultimately lead to cures for autoimmune diseases. I suppose the challenge for us is to find treatments. You know, there is no cure for autoimmune diseases as yet. There is over 80 autoimmune diseases. We don't have a single cure for any of them. Wow. And that is because we do not understand disease. So even just finding what are the true key pathways, what are the best biomarkers, how can we stratify patients, how can we use the data to really illuminate, you know, new therapies. Now, finally, we are getting geared to start trialing some of the existing drugs on our new models, no, based on human mutations. For me, what excites me is if in five or 10 years, we could say we have now effective therapies for, you know, some of these diseases. And then, of course, delving into areas that at the moment are very, very difficult to, to tackle, you know, the repertoire of B-cell and T-cell receptors. <laughs> yeah. But not just those receptors, but the anti what are they seeing? No, we know that self-antigens might not just be straight self-antigens, might be modified. There is increasing evidence that for a self-antigen to really 
become immunogenic, it might be, you know, modified. So it could be citrullinated, deamidated, misfolded. I mean, how do we integrate that information with the receptors in our immune cells, with the genetic susceptibility? I think there's a lot to do. I think excitement is going to come from many different areas. <laughs> many pediatric autoimmune disorders are rare. Rare diseases are defined as affecting fewer than 200,000 people in the United States, and some can affect far fewer than that. Dr. Matt Might is professor and director of the Hugh Call Precision Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Matt's son, Bertrand, was the first person to ever be diagnosed with NGLY1 deficiency, an ultra-rare genetic disorder. Matt joined me to discuss Bertrand's diagnostic odyssey, a four-and-a-half-year struggle of multiple diagnostic tests. Matt believes that genomics is now poised to improve diagnostics for individuals with rare genetic diseases. Right now, if you look at intractable diagnostic odysseys, a genome will get you an answer in about a third of those cases, which to me is high and low. It's amazing that we can short-circuit these odysseys in a third of the cases, and it's depressing that we can't for the other two-thirds where we're pretty sure the answer is in there and we just can't find it. So it tells me we have a long way to go in terms of genomic variant interpretation, but it's advancing rapidly. And I think that that diagnostic yield probably over the next five years will rise to about two-thirds as we get deeper into transcriptomics, clinical transcriptomics. So I think over time, over the next 10 years, you're going to see that diagnostic yield go from 33% probably to two-thirds, and then hopefully someday almost 100% when it comes to genetic disorders. There's no reason that if you have a genetic disorder that we can't find it or we shouldn't find it in your genome. I really do believe that. Many rare genetic diseases are monogenic, meaning they're caused by mutations in a single gene. Since we inherit two gene copies from our parents, a harmful recessive mutation in one gene copy doesn't typically cause disease. But if a couple carry the same harmful mutation, then their children are at an increased risk of an inherited genetic disorder. Carrier screening is a genetic assay that can identify DNA sequence variants that are linked to genetic disorders. And it's typically performed for women and men who want to know if their future children might be at risk for genetic diseases, including rare diseases. Zoe Milgram is Director of Clinical Operations at Eugene Labs. And she joined me to talk about the technology behind genetic carrier screening. Yeah, I absolutely believe that genomic testing is going to be part of mainstream healthcare. I think, you know, a lot of these genomic technologies are influencing people's health choices. I think genetic carrier screening is becoming, you know, just a standard part of obstetric choice and care. And I think there needs to be an avenue for people to access it in a supportive environment with, with teams that understand what genetic carrier screening actually is. People are very concerned about privacy. Right. And really for us, we're really worried about it too. And so the framework that we've developed is really all about best practice just in a modern setting. So taking it online, letting people have these conversations in the privacy of their own home. We really wanted to develop a healthcare service, which was like talking to your best friend who also happened to be a subject matter expert. So really creating a safe space where you can ask those questions that might otherwise be quite awkward, taking out 
the paternalistic sort of model of healthcare and really making healthcare on your own terms, but in a clinically and ethically sound way. Some diseases are rare in a particular region, but more common in other parts of the world. Neglected tropical diseases, or NTDs, are infectious diseases that primarily impact tropical and subtropical countries, mainly in the developing world. They're neglected in the sense that they primarily impact the world's poor. But about one-sixth of the world's population, more than one billion people, currently suffer from an NTD. Onchocerciasis, or sometimes called river blindness, is a debilitating NDD that affects as many as 35 million people in Africa, with about 200 million people further at risk of developing this disease. Dr. Warwick Grant is professor in the Department of Animal, Plant, and Soil Sciences at La Trobe University, and he discussed how genomics is being used to maximize the impact of treatment for onchocerciasis. He's hopeful that genetic technologies will be able to improve disease diagnostics in the developing world. What my research group is working toward with partners in, in Africa is to try to develop some diagnostic platforms now that are based on genetic technologies. Maybe not trying to establish next-generation sequencing in sub-Saharan Africa. That might be a bit of a bridge too far. But certainly the much greater understanding that we now have from work with technologies like next-generation sequencing that knowledge is only going to expand and with, with increasing rapidity. And so what we're trying to do now is to f- find ways of trying to develop diagnostic platforms based on that genetic information about the, the, the agents that cause these disease that are suitable for application in, in developing uh, countries. And so I'm really confident that we can make a, a, a big impact and and that goal, for example, of elimination of, of river blindness from sub-Saharan Africa might become a little bit easier to reach than it appears to be at the moment. At the moment, it's a, it's a 50-50, but um, with better diagnostic tools based on the kind of information we have now, I think we can make that more like a you know, 70-30 proposition than a 50-50 proposition. And, and that would be a really satisfying thing to, to be able to contribute to. Onchocerciasis is an uncommon infectious disease in the developed world, but many infectious diseases are common. Sepsis is a serious medical condition associated with bloodstream infection, and the World Health Organization estimates that it causes 6 million deaths worldwide every year. The current standard diagnostic test for blood infection remains the blood culture test. In blood culture, An individual's blood sample is incubated with media to encourage the growth of pathogenic microbes. And this is followed by additional diagnostic testing. Jean-Francois Brepson is the chief executive officer of PathoQuest. And he discussed current challenges in infectious disease diagnostics. He believes that metagenomic sequencing will improve pathogen detection and antibiotic stewardship. The untargeted NGS sequencing, we believe, will dominate infectious disease diagnostic in wards with immunocompromised patients and critically ill patients. You know, those patients, they are very fragile with a very high cost from three to 
5,000 euros or, or dollars per day of hospitalization. But beyond this, our vision is we believe that DNGS, of course, has demonstrated its medical benefits by decreasing the proportion of undiagnosed patients. But we think that a huge and unique advantage of the random sequencing is that it gives access to human DNA and RNA of clinical samples. And this will give us a unique opportunity to simultaneously test for the presence of a pathogen and for the host genetics or, or immune response. That's big. And as I've mentioned, I think that infectious disease is clearly the new frontier for NGS. And we believe that we are really only at the beginning of the story. So you've heard today how genomics and NGS are helping scientists to unlock the secrets of human disease and human biology. But did you know that NGS is also helping us to answer more fundamental human questions? Questions like, who am I? Where do I come from? And how did I get here? Understanding our past is typically informed by archaeology, that scientific study of artifacts from past human life. But recently, scientists have begun employing NGS to study ancient DNA collected from human remains. Dr. Eske Villerslev is Lundbeck Foundation Professor at the University of Copenhagen and Prince Philip Professor at the University of Cambridge. Eske joined me for a really fascinating discussion about ancient DNA, human biology, and the history of mankind. And this was really the general notion. It wasn't everybody who said, but most people in archaeology had that view. That was the general concept. And it's not that long ago. It's like less than 10 years ago, right? This was the general concept. Today we know it's completely wrong. I mean, that the vast majority of what we see as cultural changes happening across the world is something associated with the movements of people and the meeting of different people. So the movement of these ancient populations was much more common than archaeologists appreciate. I mean... So we we've always been, been traveling. We have been sense. traveling always. As far back as we can see, we have been traveling. We have met different populations. We have mixed with them. We have split out again, met some other ones, mixed with them, might be meeting the ones we mixed with many, many <laughs> thousand years ago. We're meeting again. And this is also the reason why I think one of the legacies that ancient DNA will leave behind and that you will see in school books over the next few years is that the whole racial concept is basically not supported scientifically. And I think this is one of the legacies that I'm very proud of because so far, I mean, when we talk about why we shouldn't talk about races and all that, it has always been a question of kind of from a humanity perspective, right? I mean, we should treat each other well and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't kind of we should uh, respect, each, respect other. each other and so forth. And that's all good, right? But it hasn't removed racism, oh, right? I right. mean, this is just that's, how, this fact, is the fact, yeah. right? That's fact Whether we fact, think yeah. it's the right way and there's good arguments and so forth. forth. Now we have a scientific argument. I mean, we can basically scientifically show well, it doesn't make sense because we have moved around, we have met each other, we have mixed with each other, and, you know, 
it just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. Everybody has somehow mixed with each other. And therefore, I think, from my perspective, I think it's a very important legacy of the ancient DNA work and, you know, reconstructing human history. That's definitely a terrific legacy and one that I think all of us in genomics can be proud of. Well, many thanks to all of our 2019 expert guests for sharing their stories of discovery with all of us. And many thanks to you for listening to our podcast. If you like today's show, why not subscribe to the Illumina Genomics Podcast? We're available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or really wherever podcasts are found. Subscribing is easy, it's free, and it's the best way to make sure you don't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. So join me next time right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.